Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of the Week. Our special guest this week is Eric Edelman, who is counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and has also served as Undersecretary of Defense and Ambassador to Finland and Turkey. Welcome one and all. Eric, I'm so glad you could uh, join us today because you're the perfect guest to discuss um, a number of the matters that are that are going to come before us, but uh, especially on foreign policy and what's happening at DOD and the, the dangers of this transition period. But before we get to all those questions, let's begin with uh, the president's unwillingness to acknowledge reality. Um, he is, of course, he has failed to concede. He has uh, not uh, permitted the director of the, G of the General Services Administration to begin the formal transition process. He is not letting Joe Biden see the greetings that have been piling up in the State Department from international leaders, uh, congratulating him, and so on and so forth. Uh, Damon, you um you had some harsh words uh for for uh, the party and uh, and for the president why don't you share some of those thoughts now uh, sure <laughs> uh, you know i figured uh in the end uh, people have been doing too much of calling trump a fascist and hitler so i decided i would just call him satan uh, <laughs> i actually i i decided to up the things a little bit now it, yeah. it's really i i had i i guess you could say uh, darkly a little fun with trying to uh, put in context what Trump is doing. And, uh, and I, I've just been so utterly appalled. And I'm also on a kind of psychological rebound from being very happy over the weekend that it turned out Joe Biden won. And I was very happy with his speech on Saturday night. And, and then the fact that we are kind of as a country, we are like strapped to this guy who is, is like trying to drag the country into his own kind of psychosis. Of, of inability to accept the fact that he lost the election. And uh, so I let it rip in this, in this column where I said, you know, I, I don't really believe this in a literal sense, but I do believe it seriously that uh, that Trump's motives here are somewhat like demonic. He is, he is trying to, or at least is utterly willing to try to wreck American democracy in order to placate his very fragile ego. And, uh, and I'm not very happy about it. And I let, I let him and everybody else know about it in this column. I mean, the one, I, I make a number of serious points along the way, and maybe some others will come up in the discussion. But one thing I'll note here, I noted that, you know, how how did he respond to the to the news that he lost? Well, he he could have done what any normal president would do, which is you you know you you 
tamp down your own disappointment and maybe even anger about it. And you, you say you do the so-called right thing and you say, uh, you know, Joe Biden, uh, we fought a good fight against Joe, but in the end, uh, he came out ahead. We'll do everything we can to help with the transition. So of course he didn't do that. He also could have been a little nasty. He could have said, uh, yeah, you know, I think Joe Biden, this is a big mistake you all made with this, but uh, I guess we don't have any choice but to go along with this. And I'll help out where I can. Or he could have been even nastier and he could have said, this is a terrible mistake. A Biden administration is going to be a disaster. Thank goodness we helped to hold on to the Senate and and narrowed the gap in the House. And I'm going to run again in four years when all you people are clamoring for me to come back and save you from this disaster. Now, that would have been a very nasty thing to say, but even that would not have done what he's doing now, which is to deny the reality that he did in fact lose and that is far more corrosive and and uh, and I think uh, some others uh, on the podcast would agree extremely dangerous um, we really don't know how it's going to work out I don't think he's literally going to go through with a coup but he seems to be priming a sector of the American electorate to cheer one on were it to happen and that is very very bad so um Bill Galston um Adlai Stevenson famously said when he was forced to concede that uh, he felt like the little boy who had stubbed his toe in the dark, that he was too big to cry, but it hurt too much to laugh. Um, But but my favorite loser story actually comes from a fellow named Dick Tuck, um, who ran for the state Senate in California in 1966. He was defeated. And in his concession speech, he said, well, the people have spoken the bastards. <laughs> but, um, but we haven't, we haven't gotten that, of course, nothing like that clever uh, from, from the president. Um, I guess the thing that I have been watching very carefully this week is how is the Republican party handling this? And for a while there, we just had the sense of, boy, they were, they were in lockstep, you know, they, they, they weren't acknowledging reality uh, the two most prominent Republicans in the country, McConnell and McCarthy, um, refused to refer to B- Biden as the president-elect. Um, but the um, but the, the 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 ice is breaking, right? Don't you get that sense? I mean, there are quite a few now who have come out and said, first of all, he should be getting these intelligence briefings, and uh, he should be recognized. I could I could name them, but uh, do you feel like it's it's beginning to? unravel for for Trump and that the even the Republicans are coming around? Well, I hope you're right, Mona. Uh, I can't say that I've been overly impressed with the performance uh, of elected Republican officials nationally as yet. I'm, you know, I welcome every addition to the the side of truth and and stability. Uh, But uh, I think on balance, it has been a disappointing performance. And uh, on the other hand, it is not an inexplicable performance. Uh, Donald Trump suffered a personal defeat. But Trumpism is alive and well, clearly the dominant force within the Republican Party. Uh, I think people who are hoping for a repudiation of Trumpism to allow to create space for the revitalization of the Republican Party must be 
bitterly disappointed. Perhaps some of them are even on this podcast uh, because I don't see the results of the election as having contributed to that restoration and reconstruction in any way. And I can't, you know, I can't say that that potential candidates like, say, Larry Hogan, who probably would like to do that, are in a very strong position right now. Uh, and so for the time being, uh, Republican office holders, actual and aspiring, are beholden to a political party that, that which at the grassroots level will not permit a substantial deviation from a pro-Trump posture. Uh, I hope somebody can cheer me up by telling me that I'm wrong and they're big counterexamples, but I sure haven't seen them so far. Okay, Linda, I don't suppose you're going to want to disabuse Bill of that. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but what do you, um, what do you say, uh, about the state of the Republican party? I mean, I'll give you a few names of people who have, um, congratulated the winner, the governors, Hogan, Phil Scott, Charlie Baker, Mike DeWine, uh, the new, uh, governor elect of Utah, whose name escapes me right now, senators Langford, Rubio, Rounds, Romney, Toomey, uh, and also just in the last few minutes, um, Lindsey Graham and Chuck Grassley have said that the that Biden should begin getting intelligence briefings. Well, let me tell you what my greater fear is. I'm not only going to not disabuse Bill of his worries, I, I may actually raise his anxiety levels because what I see happening here. Is, uh, the, I know. Steady there, Bill. Is, 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 uh, the, the Trumpists have essentially become what uh, many of us uh, back in the seventies and eighties thought of the Democratic Party, which was that they were that there were many in the party who were really anti-American. The argument that they are making that there was widespread abuse, that we cannot count on the fairness of our election system, that essentially the United States of America has an electoral system where ballot boxes can be stuffed, where individuals can come in and throw away ballots, where the outcome is simply uh, not something we can count on. This is the kind of, of thing you, you say when you're talking about a banana republic. You know, this is the American criticism of elections in uh, authoritarian countries where they have, you know, ostensibly an election, but it doesn't mean anything. And this line is being fed to 70 million people who voted for Donald Trump. This is, to me, profoundly un-American. This is an assault on America. Forget about the partisan divisions. This is all about democracy and who we are as a nation. And do we live in a country that is in fact free, that is in fact democratic, and in which elections are open and fair, and we can count on the results. So I am actually uh, profoundly upset at the Republican Party's uh, essentially acquiescence in this Trump mania uh, and this Trump disinformation campaign that the election was somehow stolen. I think this bodes very, very ill for the future, not just of the Republican Party, but for the future of democracy in America. If you have, you know, half of the electorate not believing the uh, that elections in the United States are free and fair, that that's a real problem. 
Eric, um, some people have said, actually, I might have been one of them, uh, that um, Trump, one of the, that Trump's worst uh, qualities were that he was undermining, systematically undermining faith in American institutions. And this one, his parting shot may, in fact, be his worst, that by undermining faith in the election and the election process and inclining so many millions of Americans to think that the system is rigged, he is really going to the very heart of our system. If it doesn't, if there isn't that basic trust, uh, it's hard you know, it's, it's, it's really scary to contemplate, um, the future. How do you think this is, you know, like if you were still in the state department and, and you heard that there was a country, you know, that had just held an election and that the, uh, existing president was refusing to acknowledge his loss and that he was, you know, firing top officials in the security apparatus and, uh, so forth. Uh, and that major parts of his party were also, you know, fit, uh, refusing to acknowledge the the winner. Uh, what would you think about that country? Well, Mona, first, thank you very much for having me. And uh, it's great to be with this group, uh, all of whom I admire enormously. And um, needless to say, I agree with pretty much everything that everybody said. And to, to your question, I mean, I would probably be preparing a telegram back to Washington saying that, you know, we need to be prepared to invoke those parts of U.S. law that cut off assistance to countries that have extra constitutional changes of, of government. Mm. Um, I mean, we're not quite there yet, uh, obviously, right. but, uh, but this is very worrisome for all the reasons that uh, Bill and Linda have, and Damon have, have, have talked about. You know, my, uh, my colleague at Johns Hopkins Sice, Elliot Cohen, always says the problem, you know, with, with politicians is not that they say things they don't believe, it's that they end up believing the things they say. <laughs> and I, I agree with, you know, uh, what John Bolton said uh, in the Washington Post, that the longer this goes on, the more the presidential temper tantrum is coddled by Republicans, the worse this gets, not the better it gets. And there is a danger um, that, you know, people will talk themselves into believing this nonsense, as, as Linda suggested, that there's been some kind of widespread fraud. I mean, this is not a close election. When the votes are all counted, I think there are about a million outstanding in each of New York and New Jersey, most, I mean, uh, California. Uh, both, both of those are likely, to, or most of those are likely to go to Joe Biden. So when all is said and done, uh, he's likely to end up winning the popular vote by 7 million votes. He will have won the Electoral College by the same, exact same margin that Trump declared was a landslide uh, four years ago. Uh, he will have won in the Rust Belt states that he flipped back to the Democrats by three times the margin that uh, that Trump had in those same states. Uh, so th this is really not a close election. His margins likely to be larger than the one that um, that uh, Barack Obama had against Mitt Romney, in whose presidential campaign I worked. Uh, mm -hmm. So th this is not a close election. People should not pretend that it's a close election. Uh, the fact that the last Republican presidential nominee, Mitt Romney, has uh, welcomed Biden um, is a good thing. The last pre Republican president, George W. Bush, has, has uh, you know, congratulated and welcomed Biden. That's a good thing. Uh, I, you know, I share Bill and Linda's concerns, but I, um, I hope, Mona, that you are right, that the tide is beginning to turn. There are more people coming out. And I noticed that even, you know, the Wall Street Journal, which has been very indulgent on the editorial page of Trump, uh, has basically said, you know, it's over. 
Um, and uh, Rich Lowry of the National Review, also been willing to extend a, a, a huge benefit of the doubt to Trump, has in Politico today said it's over. Uh, so I, I hope this you know fever begins to to break and people uh, move away from this, because as Linda suggested, this is really very dangerous uh, and corrosive to the fundamental norm of democracy that losers accept that they've lost um, and become the loyal opposition. Yeah. Um... It's um, it, as we keep saying, um, it's one thing for Trump to have his petty concerns. And of course, it's obvious that he puts his own personal emotional needs ahead of the uh, interests of the nation always. But the fact that he has this cult that, um, that as you say, coddle him is uh, is the real problem. Um, I'll just add a few more names, though, to the list of those who are bailing uh, Rupert Murdoch. And the, and the properties that he owns, um, except for the entertainment wing of Fox News. And admittedly, that's the biggest, that those are the biggest audiences. Um, Sheldon Adelson's paper in Las Vegas, the Las Vegas Review Journal, has written a very tart editorial telling Trump to uh, step down and, and be, do so, I mean, to, to be polite about it. And uh, Eric Erickson, an influential radio host, uh, there's quite a long list. So there's that. Now let's talk for a minute, if we can, about the actual chances of success of these <laughs> claims of voter fraud. Um, so uh, they have waved around pieces of paper saying that they have 248 you know, affidavits, and it turns out it's only a little over 100. But and in, in these cases, you know, some of these are just so preposterous. Um, things like claims that um, a democratic, uh, a uh, sorry, a poll worker was wearing a Black Lives Matter T-shirt, um, that voters exceeded the uh, that the uh, number of votes exceeded the registered voters in the state in states like Wisconsin that have same day voter registration, um, that absentee ballots came from out of state, <laughs> which is. <laughs> Kind of normal. That's where absentee ballots usually are from, <laughs> um, <laughs> from people who are absent from the state uh, and so forth. Um, also, let's talk a little bit about the numbers. Um, so Fair Vote looked at recounts over the last 20 years, and they found that the average shift in votes has been about 430 uh, when when recounts are done, and the largest shift ever was a little less than twenty six hundred votes. Now, Biden, as of Wednesday, was leading in Wisconsin by twenty thousand more twenty thousand five hundred and forty votes in Pennsylvania by almost fifty thousand votes in Michigan by one hundred and forty six thousand and some Arizona by about ten thousand Nevada by thirty six and so on Georgia by fourteen. So these are not as 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 Eric was saying these are not close. Um, there is absolutely no chance or yeah there's vanishingly small chance that any amount of recounting um, would change the outcome. And these these claims of fraud are utterly, utterly frivolous and absurd. Um, okay, let us um, move on to uh, the, 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 the international risks that we're under. Eric, I'd like to come back to you on this um, because we are... We are seeing a um, 
a situation in which the president, we don't, we don't know why he's doing this. I mean, it could be that he fired the defense secretary right after the election for the same reason that he fired attorney general sessions right after the 2018 elections. That, that is, he was holding off until after the election, even though he was stewing about this person's disloyalty as he sees it. Um, and, uh, and there's nothing more to it than that. But you, um, I think, know a lot of people on the inside and have some insight into this that others may not. So can you, can you give us your, the benefit of your knowledge on what to make of this? Well, the president's burning down the Department of Defense in the midst of a presidential transition, which uh, in, in my experience and to my knowledge uh, is uh, unprecedented in American history. Um, or certainly since the National Security Act of 1947 created the Department of Defense. Um, I've been talking to uh, some of the uh, recently former senior officials uh, who have exited the department over the last couple of days. And I think uh, there are really three pieces to this, Mona. There's one um, piece, which is just a, a vengeance piece, which you adverted to in your comments, which is that... Uh, you know, Secretary Esper was resisting the president uh, and particularly the uh, presidential personnel office uh, over the last several months, but he also was resisting on a number of uh, policy uh, matters. Um, and so uh, this was the president uh, acting, you know, vindictively and in, a, in the petty way that, uh, you know, seems to appeal to him and particularly the desire to humiliate people, firing them by tweet. Um, I, I think uh, Secretary Esper maybe had about a five-minute heads up from Mark Meadows before the tweet went out. The second piece is... Oh, so he was treated comparatively well compared to other Trump uh, people Trump has fired. I, I suppose you could say that. Um, I can't possibly comment, but... <laughs> but um, but uh, the second piece uh, is Afghanistan. Um, uh Secretary Esper, I think, had sent a, a, a pretty uh, strong classified memo over to the White House um, uh, outlining the uh, concerns that the Department of Defense had about a precipitate withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, including notably the fact that uh, the Taliban has not met the conditions that had been agreed you know, by interagency by the government uh, needed to be met before a withdrawal could uh, take place. And I think there's also... Uh, a third element, which is they are trying to stock the Department of Defense with Trump loyalists uh, for this, you know, in my view, um, a totally imaginary, illusory second Trump term that, you know, Secretary Pompeo uh, talked about um, the other day. Uh, so I think it's really got, you know, th three three pieces to it. I think some of the darker conspiratorial views that this is precedent to an attack on Iran or something else that I, I don't think are true. But uh, frankly, those three things are concerning enough. I have to say, Bill Galston, that um, when I saw um, Secretary of State Pompeo do his little joke uh, about, because he was asked, by the way, by a Fox News correspondent, um, when will the the uh, State Department uh, acknowledge the uh, election of Joe Biden, and and um, how much do you worry that the delay in acknowledging his election may impact national security? And 
he gave a little smile and said, we are you know, all prepared for, you know, to, for a transition, a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. And he, li- he smiled. But I have to say that is that something to joke about? <laughs> I mean, uh, especially considering that the, the position that the, that the president is taking, I, I, if it was meant as a joke, it was the least funny joke ever. And I'm not even entirely sure he meant it as a joke. What do you think? Well, you know, I've I've run out of verbs, adjectives, and nouns uh, <laughs> to characterize uh, the statements and actions of people like Secretary Pompeo. Uh, it's disgraceful, but it's an utterly predictable disgrace. Uh, Pompeo's political future, and I think he thinks he has one, is entirely tied uh, to President Trump. Uh, Mr. Pompeo had an opportunity to create his own political base by one, by running for a, a Senate seat that he certainly would have won. Uh, and if he'd accepted at, if he'd accepted the the invitation, indeed, you know the you know, the importunings by the uh, importunings by, by, McConnell. by McConnell. <laughs> and, you know, he he elected to maintain his position of total political dependence on the president. Uh, and he doesn't believe that he has the ability consistent with his future ambitions to break from with the president on any matter, large or even small. And uh, so he's made his bed, and now he's lying in it in both senses of the term. Uh, and uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. The you know there is you know this old legal phrase that I think I've cited before. You know, race ipsa loquitur. The thing speaks for itself, and mm-hmm. I just hope the American people can see it for what it is. Linda, in 2000, we had a delayed um, transition, a really truncated transition because of the uh, dispute over the election. And uh, the 9-11 Commission later wrote that they felt that the 37-day delay caused a six-month delay in staffing up the administration because of the you know problem about getting security clearances and whatnot and appointees. And that this might have affected our capacity as a nation to um, anticipate or you know be aware of the 9/11 attacks. Um, so this um, attack on the Defense Department at a time like this does seem to really court uh, disaster potentially. Absolutely. And by the way, I can speak with some personal experience having uh, been nominated to a cabinet post. It was a very truncated uh, process. The whole nomination and vetting process was truncated uh, during uh, the first Bush uh, term. And I think it did do harm uh, to the administration. But, you know, it's very clear that this kind of vindictiveness means that many in the Republican Party, and certainly Trump himself, have no regard uh, for uh, the country, 
I mean, this idea that somehow Donald Trump loves America and is a patriot, mm. uh, I think is all belied by this because what you, I mean, what is really remarkable about democracies and ours being the oldest and the smoothest running in the history of the world is that there is this peaceful transfer of power that um, the transfer takes place. You allow the winner to come in to uh, clean house in terms of the political appointees, uh, but also to be secure in knowing that the civil servants who are there, um, they also transition in terms of who their new bosses are. Well, it looks like one of the things that Trump is planning on doing, and they are doing it in various agencies, is to try to embed some of the political appointees into staff positions that are career positions. Uh, and, and it's like a, you know, a fifth column that they're trying to put in place to try to uh, not save people's jobs, not giving them job security, but really to, to essentially be guerrillas um, in the, the coming four-year war that they're going to wage against the Trump administration. It is just deeply disgraceful, deeply troubling, um, and, and says that something very um, fundamental has happened in the United States over the last decade or so. And it's not something that is going to easily, um, you know, be wiped away. Right. And Damon, it sure gives us a taste of what a second Trump term would have begun to look like, God forbid. <laughs> but um, but let, let me just note about um, Esper, that um, though he got the nickname Yesper because he was supposedly a yes man, he's he's pushing back on that quite vigorously. He gave an interview to Military Times uh, where he had some interesting things to say. And um, it turns out that one of the things that alienated Trump, um, be prepared to be unshocked, is that um, he resisted the Trump administration's attempt to be vindictive toward Alexander Vindman, who um, was up for a promotion in the normal course of events, and uh, and the Trump administration wanted to block it, uh, and he pushed back on that, and he also pushed he he banned Confederate flags from military facilities, and he opposed the invocation of the Insurrection Act. Um, so. Um, for those things, uh, the the president wanted to punish him, and you know it does it does remind you that it reminds me anyway about uh, about Jeff Sessions, who I mentioned a few minutes ago. But you know, I'm no fan of Sessions, of course. He was the first Republican senator to endorse Trump, and for that he will go down in history um, uh, with shame. But <clears throat> at least when he was sec when he was Attorney General, he did do the ethical thing as he saw it, and he was right to recuse himself um, from the investigation into the Russia business. And and for, for doing the ethical thing, he earned the unending enmity of the commander-in-chief. Indeed. Was there a question in there? Oh, well, then. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> uh, Say whatever I, you want. <laughs> I agree. I mean, I, I think it's, it's yet another example of, uh, among infinite others, of Trump yeah. Trump doing he, – he, it's a matter of him viewing the country, its institutions, its military. Everything is supposed to be uh, vindicated or – justified in terms of its advancement of his own personal agenda and interests as he understands them. So 
you know, he, he would have loved Esper if Esper had done everything he told him to. And if he, uh, he had, uh, you know, a, a light, gone along with the insurrection act during the protests over the summer. And if, and if he had agreed to withdraw troops from Afghanistan on exactly the timetable Trump wants and so forth, but he didn't. And it has nothing to do with really the substance of those disagreements. It's not like Trump has some, you know, uh, lock solid, uh, in, uh, expert assessment of the troop situation and the Taliban in Afghanistan and, and sees that uh, Esper is being, you know, adamantly opposed to following it. And it's a, it's a substantive policy dispute. And so he's asking for his resignation. No, it's because he, Trump wants to do something and Esper is saying, well, actually, this isn't probably the best thing to do. And Trump just wants to get rid of him. And that's just the way it goes at every level on every issue with every person in the administration. And it's it's never going to end. And as you said uh, at the top there, um, if there were a second Trump administration, it would be even more of that. And so uh, we should be very grateful that the election yes. turned out the way it did, uh, at least in the world of reality. <laughs> Absolutely. You're right. And not, not in the fantasy world. Um, <clears throat> Eric, I, I see your hand is raised and I, and I will come to you. I do, though, have a question for you. So make your comment first, and then I have something I want to ask you. Well, I just wanted to make the point that um, – when we talk about the dangers of the transition and, you know, Linda's talked about this, you've talked about it. Um, there, there are a couple of different parts to this. One, one is um, uh, the part that um, both you and, and Linda talked about, which was cited in the 9-11 commission. And that is that one of my foreign service mentors once told me, you know, transition time is worth three times governing time. And the reason for that is during the transition, you have the relative luxury of being able to consider different issues without actually having to make, you know, having the responsibility to make uh, the myriad decisions that are called upon in government every, every day. And you're, you're not drinking from the fire hose yet. You, you mm -hmm. reflect a little bit, you can think about how you want to approach problems and you can plan. You know, President Eisenhower famously said that, you know, planning is everything, but no, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. So, you, the plan's going to have to be adjusted, but it's much better for administrations to enter with a plan than not to be able to do that. So not allowing the Biden people uh, to, to get in to get the classified briefings that they need and to begin to assess the state of the agencies as they are and, and what might need to be done to bring them up to snuff is, is, is very bad in terms of good governance. But secondly, you know, transition, because our system is not a parliamentary system like the UK where you have the election and the former prime minister leaves uh, Downing, 10 Downing Streets replaced by the new prime minister who walks in and the permanent cabinet undersecretary shoves a red box at, uh, at the new uh, prime minister, uh, he or she, and says, you know, uh, prime minister, here are all the decisions you have to make tonight and here are all the mm -hmm. that go behind them. Our, ours is a much longer, more complex process of taking over a very large uh, government institution and the United States is uniquely vulnerable because we only have one government at a time uh, to uh, adversaries pushing the envelope, uh, seeking advantage over the United States in, in this you know, period of uh, uncertainty about exactly where U.S. policy is headed. 
um, and we've seen it happen in the past. I mean, we had a, a crackdown on uh, on solidarity in um, in December of 1980 uh, after uh, Ronald Reagan was elected, just as he was about to come into office. There are other examples, and so to you know decapitate uh, the Department of Defense and burn it down, and to uh, at least keep in prospect the decapitation of the Central Intelligence Agency and the FBI at this moment of vulnerability is just beyond irresponsible. It's dangerous and and unpatriotic to to use Linda's phrase. Um, and the third piece of it is it enormously diminishes. You know, you asked me about how I would see this as a diplomat looking at another country overseas. One of the you know great uh, roles we play in the world is to be able to criticize Alexander Lukashenko for not holding a free and fair election in, in Belarus. Uh, and we do it all over the world and in other places. This has been the greatest gift to Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, and uh, Ayatollah Khamenei that I can imagine. Khamenei was just making jokes about how the election shows that American democracy is flawed and who are they to tell you know, anybody else about how, how to run democracy. So you know, this is on multiple levels. The, this holdup of the transition um, is is uh, bad governance and dangerous to the country. Thank you for that. Um, I, I do have one other question uh, on this uh, on a related subject. Um, there are a lot of people, um, sort of in my circle, I would say, who voted for Biden because Trump was unacceptable and unfit, but who are a little worried about Biden's approach to foreign policy, um, who um, who worry, for example, that uh, when he is seeking to undo things Trump did, one of them might be the withdrawal from the JCPOA, the, the Iran deal. Um, so I know you personally opposed the Iran deal at the time. Um, and w- what's your sense about, if you have one, about where Biden administration might go on that topic? You know, my former, my former boss, uh, uh, Bob Gates, who, uh, Secretary of Defense, in his uh, memoir, Duty, uh, you know, basically said that he thought Joe Biden had been wrong about every major national security issue that he could remember. Right. Um, and and I, I have a, a, a some, somewhat similar view, although Secretary Gates, you know, uh, when he was quoted on that by the Wall Street Journal, went at great, was at great pains to also say that he thought Biden was a person of great character and, um, and a, a, a very decent human being. And I agree with that as well. And he added that Trump was unfit. And Trump is unfit. And so yes. I'm quite happy to be part of a group of Republicans, uh, former Republican national security officials who endorsed Biden and a group of 800 bipartisan national security officials who endorsed Biden, et cetera. On the, uh, and I, I have a lot of confidence, by the way, in, in most of the people around him. I think he's surrounded by a very professional team of people, both who are likely to be in the National Security Council, uh, state and defense. I might not always agree with them, and I might have tactical differences, but I think they're all extremely smart. They're all uh, patriots and committed to the nation. Um, on the JCPOA per se, Mona, I think you know I went through five presidential transitions, um, and um, I went through the my first one was the Carter Reagan transition, and um, I went through the uh, Reagan. Bush transition, which up until this one was maybe the most contentious, actually. Wow. Uh, and then the uh, uh, the, uh, the Bush Clinton um, uh, Clinton Bush and Bush Obama transitions. And 
One thing I've noticed is that, you know, every new team comes in and because they're people who've been in government before, usually the Trump administration being something of an exception, um, they it takes them a little bit of time to understand and learn that in the four or eight years that they've been out of office or 12 years, uh, that that things have changed, that the world has moved on and that they can't just go back to uh, the positions that that they were in, you know, at at you know, the uh, last time they were in government. And I think that that's going to be the case with the Biden administration and the, uh, the JCPOA uh, agreement with the agreement with Iran. And, and that is because, first of all, uh, the Trump administration, to its credit, I think, has built up an enormous amount of leverage through the maximum pressure campaign on Iran uh, and the sanctions. Uh, moreover, Iran is now very seriously out of compliance with its undertakings um, under the agreement, even though the Europeans stayed in it after uh, President Trump pulled us out. Um, and I think the latest IAEA report, I think I was just reading this morning, shows that they've got uh, 10 or 12 times the low enriched uranium that they're entitled to hold uh, under the agreement and at higher levels of enrichment than they're allowed under the agreement. Uh, those are facts uh, that the Biden people are going to have to Address And there's even some tension in a democratic platform between immediately going back into the JCPOA, but also recognition that some of the things that have happened since uh, the Obama administration left office have highlighted some of the defects in the agreement that I and others uh, were concerned about at the time the agreement was reached, like the expiration uh, in October of the conventional arms embargo on Iran. So my suspicion is that knowing uh, this and recognizing that time has moved on, uh, that they've got both uh, some leverage that they uh, should not squander because they will be criticized if they do, and because there will be congressional concern. I don't think they want to pick a fight with Mitch McConnell and the Republicans on this right at the outset of the administration. And we should remember that it would not just be Senate Republicans who would be troubled by this. Uh, Chuck Schumer uh, came out against the JCPOA in the summer of 2015 as did Bob Menendez, the ranking Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and the and the um, and Senator Ben Cardin, who is the next ranking uh, Democrat after Menendez. So there will be some congressional opposition to a simple walk back into the JCPOA, which I think is really not practical in any event. So I suspect there'll be some time. I think they will try to engage the Iranians. I think they will try to. Uh, figure out if there's a path towards a uh, a longer, more comprehensive agreement that restrains the Iran, uh, its nuclear ambitions uh, more completely than the JCPOA did over a longer period of time, uh, hopefully without any time limit, um, and also deals with some of the other issues that were left out of the agreement, like the ballistic missile um, uh, inventory that Iran maintains, as well as its uh, malign behavior throughout the region. So I don't expect them to actually uh, take that one on early and walk back into it. I could be wrong, but that's the way I see it. Excellent. Okay. Topic three. Um, you could make a case that the outcome of the 2020 election was a ringing endorsement of centrism. Um, you could really say that the country showed they're all big beg to differ fans, that they're right in the center. Bill Galston, you wrote a column sort of making that point this week without the reference to beg to differ, but. (laughs) 
Bill, are you with us? I'm with you. Uh, oh. Your your voice got cut off for a second. Oh, oh sorry. Um, I was just saying that um, that you wrote a column this week arguing that uh, this the election results, when you look at them top to bottom, were kind of an endorsement of centrism. And I decided to add to that that you know this means the country really is a whole bunch of beg to differ type people, right, right in the center. <laughs> well, uh, I think we. I'll make two points in response. When you add the decisions of the American people uh, at the national level, add them all up, and what you have now is a situation that uh, you know that cries out for a greater measure of bipartisan cooperation than we've seen in quite some time. Or to put it as bluntly as possible, unless there is more, uh, we will uh, experience a very frustrating period of gridlock at a time when there are genuine national emergencies and urgencies to deal with. And I'm an optimist that in the face of this reality, which I think most, most Americans acknowledge, uh, that Senator McConnell will not choose to begin. Uh, with the objective of uh, of ensuring that Joe Biden will be a one-term president, uh, as he famously declared for Barack Obama in 2009, uh, to say nothing of the fact that Joe Biden will probably, will probably be a one-term president anyway. Uh, so the problem is moot. Uh, and we'll see whether Biden will begin his administration with the sorts of proposals that in principle could generate a productive bipartisan conversation. Everybody knows what they are and what they aren't. Uh, so that's, po that's point number one. Uh, without beg to differ politics, uh, we'll get gridlock. Point number two, if you look at the expressions of popular will at the state level, they do point, I believe, in a center-seeking direction. Uh, I pitched my article, framed it as a tale of two states, Florida and California. Uh, Florida gave Trump a larger margin of victory than has, been, than has been the case for a number of previous presidential cycles. At the same time, the same Florida electorate, by a vote of 61 to 39 percent, uh, authorized a staged uh, increase in the minimum wage of $15 an hour, almost double what it is in Florida now. So, you know, is, is Florida sending conservative signals, liberal signals, or some of one and some of the other? I think, uh, I think the outcome speaks for itself. California, uh, Joe Biden got two-thirds of Californians' votes. At the same time, out of the enormous number of ballot measures, uh, initiatives on the ballot, most of the high-profile progressive initiatives went down to crashing defeat. And in many cases, it wasn't even close. So is California sending liberal signals or moderate signals or some combination of the two? Again, I think, uh, I think the third box is the one to check. Uh, and if you look around the country at other states, you see very similar patterns. Uh, they, are, they are willing to liberalize 
uh, the treatment of drugs, for example, both within the criminal justice system and elsewhere. Uh, at the same at the same time, a number of conservative appearing initiatives uh, enjoyed success. So yeah, I think I, I think the American people are calling for an end to sim- single party governance. Whether their call will be heeded is a different question altogether, because there isn't an altogether tight combination uh, between the people and their elected uh, representatives. Um, Damon, you sometimes hear it said, often hear it said, that uh, American politics has become just entertainment and identity expression and tribalism that it isn't, it isn't even about the discussion of issues and so forth. Um, but in light of what Bill points out, and uh, I can add to it, uh, you know, the, uh, it's really interesting that, that, that California voters, you know, very liberal blue state, but they said no to expanding rent control. They said no to reinstating, uh, affirmative action. As Linda pointed out last week, they, um, uh, they, they said, uh, they, they, they want to undo Assembly Bill Five that would put a lot of independent has put a lot of independent contractors out of work, including Lyft and Uber drivers and so forth, and many others. Um, and uh, and so it it seems as if, despite the toxicity of so much of what we see coming out of the Trump administration and and out of national politics, that at some levels anyway, we are still we're still governing, we're still choosing. Um, it isn't all just performative? Well, in in general, uh, I think the more local you go with politics, the, it, it, it sometimes gets a little more uh, concrete and focused on actual issues. It's at the national level that things become this kind of strange hall of mirrors where we're, you know, all fighting about abstractions and it's a lot of negative partisanship. I mean, I, so I think it's a very complicated story and we don't even have the full election counts or the properly reweighted exit polls to look at yet. But I, I liked, uh, uh, Bill's column and I think there's a lot of truth there about the need for and craving for something in the middle. I, my own view on that that I've been developing in columns over the last few years is that it's a little bit different center than uh, a lot of people in Washington and people who watch Washington assume it to be. I think it tends to be on some economic issues fairly far to the left, not as far as Bernie Sanders, but definitely a kind of FDR direction um, uh, in terms of economics. And then I think pretty conservative on social issues, uh, which is not exactly where the center is usually presumed to be. The center tends to be, we, we tend to assume the center is like economic libertarianism and then and then left-wing libertarianism like on cultural and social issues whereas i think it's in a way almost the reverse um but i would also point out that um the the case sort of for thinking that politics remains very polarized and nasty and and uh and such i think to some extent was i think borne out by the results of the election i mean simply look at the turnout why is it that turnout was up so much not just on the democratic side uh in order to get trump out but then matched by a not as large but still very significant red wave 
to keep, you know, whatever, like the, the, the woke brigades and, and, uh, you know, anti-police and socialist throngs on the left from taking over. So each side motivated, I think it's, it's, uh, it's voters primarily by hatred of an imagined other. And if you think about it, I mean, Biden said remarkably little in the campaign about what he was, what he was running to do and a lot about how he was running against Trumpism. And Trump said almost nothing about what he was running to do, unlike four years ago when he did sort of have a message, a positive message of some kind. Now it was all about not being them, not being, you know, the Hunter Biden presidency combined again with, with kind of defund the police and socialism's on the march and all of that. So, And Biden was against God, don't forget yeah, that. Oh, yes, of course. And if, <laughs> and if you elect him, then God is out of a job or something. Yes. <laughs> um, Bill, did you want to respond to, uh, to Damon real quick? Yeah, I, you know, I think his point about the center not being exactly what it used to be is very well taken. I will note... Uh, that his formulation of the new center as liberal on economics and conservative on culture is a pretty good rough and ready working definition of populism. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yes. Class. Yes. I, 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 yeah. I, I would say it's a kind of centrist populism. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, now I would just offer one, one quick qualification and that is culturally conservative on some issues but not all issues. There's been an enormous movement across party lines on drugs and drug legalization, for example. Uh, that used to be a defining cultural divide going back to the late 60s and early 70s. It clearly isn't anymore. And relatedly, there's been a change in the, the location of the center with regard to criminal justice reform. And, uh, and nobody or hardly anybody is in favor of quote unquote defunding the police but if, if you look at the bill, for example, that Tim Scott uh, crafted in the Senate and the kinds of interesting responses that it has evoked in, in the House, I think you can see the, the center on criminal justice reform is very different from where it was in the late 80s and early 90s. So like the Rio Grande, as the river meanders, the center of the river changes its location. Yeah, speaking just for myself, I have to say that that I've changed on on the drug war over the years. I, I will note that my uh, mentor and first boss, William F. Buckley Jr., was uh, way ahead of the curve on this. He was against the drug war, I think, back in the seventies. Um, but uh, but in any event, I I've come around to thinking that though I don't want to encourage uh, more drug use by legalizing drugs, I think the price that we're paying for keeping them. Uh, so restricted and illegal is just too high in in lives lost and and neighborhoods destroyed and therefore I've changed so I don't know I'm maybe a feather maybe a straw in the wind, but Linda let me ask you about um, one one thing that maybe people will learn from this election maybe not but um, do you think they they will some people will sort of take the message that black and Hispanic voters should not be treated as monoliths. I mean, there were a surprising number of black and Hispanic males, especially who voted for Trump. Um, and while I can't say I agree with their choice, I'm hoping that people will recognize uh, on both sides that these voters are not 
they're not blocks, that they're individuals and they should be appealed to as such. And Republicans shouldn't be afraid of Hispanic voters and, and Democrats shouldn't take them for granted. Well, I think with respect to African Americans, they are still mostly a block. Um, he got about fifteen percent of the uh, black vote, but but that's still you know of the still, male black vote. Right, he yeah. got less than uh, than that among black women. Right, yeah. yeah. So it's uh, but Hispanics, you know, I've been singing this tune for a very long time. I wrote a book about it over thirty years ago um, about Hispanics. Hispanics are uh, very much more like a previous immigrant groups. Uh, in the United States, they're probably more like Italians than they are any other group. And if you uh, know your history, Italians gravitated towards the Republican Party in the middle of the last century and have pretty much stayed there. Hispanics have been voting for Republican for president for a very long time. I think I've said it on this show before. Uh, about a third of Mexican Americans voted for Richard Nixon in 1972. Somewhere between 40 and 44 percent voted for both Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush uh, in their reelection bids. Uh, and so you really do have diversity in the Hispanic community. And I think one of the things Americans don't understand about Hispanics is there is much less of the kind of grievance victim politics uh, in the Hispanic community than there is, I think, in, in some parts of the uh, uh, African-American community. Hispanics, by and large, and particularly immigrants, don't think of themselves as victims. Um, they see themselves as being given a chance to succeed, uh, the Pew uh, Research uh, Group has done lots of polling. One of the most fascinating polls asked people, you know, what it took to get ahead in the United States. Hispanics were actually slightly more likely than whites to believe that hard work is what, what was most responsible for whether or not you succeeded or failed in America. So I do think that this is going to uh, make people look more closely at Hispanics. I, you know, I, I was frankly surprised that Mexican Americans in South Texas were not more turned off by Trump's really vicious uh, language about Mexicans. Me too. Yeah. Uh, but I think what they looked at is, gee, you know, I'm a small business person. I've got, you know, a restaurant. I've got a landscaping company. I've got, uh, you know, a small business that was that did very well in the first uh, three years of the Trump administration. The pandemic has you know, made that problematic for me. And I want to get back to work. And, and they sort of thought maybe they would have a better chance of the economy coming back under Trump uh, than they would under Biden. Whether that's accurate or not is not for me to say, but I think that was what was driving it. And they weren't thinking first and foremost um, of themselves as Mexican uh, or Mexican-American. They were thinking of themselves in terms of the communities in which they live, the way they made their livelihood, and the kind of public policy choices uh, that made sense for them. So I do think that's encouraging. Um, I think it is an example of why Hispanics are, in fact, uh, much to the, you know, I, I think surprise of, of many conservatives are in fact assimilating to the American mainstream. Um, I'll just add this quote from uh, Josh Kraushar, who's been a guest on this uh, show, and he's uh, with the National Journal. He said, every single seat Republicans flipped in the House was won by a woman, a minority, or a veteran. <laughs> just kind of an interesting little datum. Eric, um, 
I know you're an expert on foreign policy, but um, I, I'm just curious uh, whether the last four years, the experience of watching what has become of the Republican Party um, has changed your views about domestic issues at all. You know, it has, Mona. Um, it, you know, I think, um, you know, the killing of George Floyd and not just the killing of George Floyd, but the, the pattern of young unarmed black men being killed by police officers has um, made me realize, uh, as well as the, the sort of vein of racism that Donald Trump has exploited, um, well, since before he started running for president that with the birther conspiracy, uh, has just made me realize that there there is a, a lot more work we need to do as Americans, uh, you know, on dealing with questions of uh, racial equality and justice than I had thought, uh, you know, previously. Um, and I, I also think one, uh, you know, I, I think one of the great um, issues that I, uh, two other issues I've changed my view on a bit, uh, one is um, uh, income inequality or having been ambassador to a country, Finland, which has, you know, one of the most equal distributions of wealth in the world. Uh, and then to see the growing um, inequality in the United States, I, I do think that's something conservatives really have to start figuring out an answer to. And, and just purely saying, well, let the market sort it all out, I don't think is is sufficient uh, for, you know, uh, the conservative movement in the United States to, uh, to take that position. And the final one is, you know, industrial policy. And here I have maybe some hope that uh, a Biden administration can find some common ground with with Republicans, and and we may be able to do it. We may finally get Infrastructure Week mm -hmm. because I think um, the strategic competition we find ourselves in with China requires a, an approach that's different from the kind we had with the strategic competition with the Soviet Union, which was not a market economy. China is, and China's civil military fusion that they have. Um, created and the amount of investment that they're putting into new technologies that are going to change the future of the battlefield in military terms in the future um, probably requires some element of industrial policy in the United States. I, I don't think it's enough to say the market should allocate capital in all of these areas. There are some areas where I think we're going to need the government to become more involved. And I think there's an openness to in some parts of the Republican Party to that as well now, um, and a potential for, I think, a, a compromise. A bill would know better than I, but I think that's a possibility. Interesting. All right. We've now come to the section of our podcast where we do a highlight or low light of the week, something we'd like to uh, take note of. So Damon, let's start with you. Well, um, I always feel a little guilty when I do this, and I'm sure Mona will tell me off air that I should never do it again if it's not a good thing. <laughs> but um, I, I occasionally will plug something from my own uh, website, my employer, The Week. Uh, this time, uh, there is a really interesting piece up just today on Thursday by a guy named David Ferris, who is several steps to my left. Uh, he's been one of the leading champions of saying we that Democrats 
Democrats need to pack the court and break up California into three states and do all these fairly radical kind of structural changes in order to counteract the counter-majoritarianism of the Republican Party. And on all that, I disagree with him quite a lot. But he has a really great piece up today titled, Was Trump Ever as Unpopular as We Thought? where this guy who's firmly on the left looks at the at the really in in some cases astonishing polling errors and just asks what if Trump was always about 5 points more popular than we thought and and reflects on the fact that, you know, despite the fact that Biden, yes, he won decisively and at the national level by about, you know, probably will end up being about 7 million or so votes in the electoral college. If there were a one point swing further toward Trump, he would have won. And that makes you wonder things like, well, gee, like if Trump had been 30% less of a jerk in that first debate, could he have actually prevailed? Uh, so Ferris, as someone on the left, really is on honest enough to, to look at some of the data and to think about what this might mean for Democrats, for the left, and for the country. And it's a good, it's a good read and, and thoughtful. Interesting. Linda. Well, give Linda a chance to think about it. Bill. Well, I have two items to put on the table, a highlight and a warning. For me, the high point perhaps of this entire misbegotten year has been Joe Biden's dignified, pitch-perfect performance since the polls closed nine days ago. I have to say he has exceeded my expectations for self-restraint, for magnanimity, uh, for generosity. Uh, I just think it, he's, been, he's been magnificent. Uh, and He's also given Democrats and his supporters a lesson in the kind of patience that you can only develop with maturity. Uh, and uh, I think he has already made a contribution to the country. Amen to that. I agree. Uh, now, my warning, and this may seem very obscure, but I think it has profound implications. For those who've been following the just ended conflict uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, the fact that the Armenian forces were decimated uh, by, by missile-armed drones suggests to me that there has been a fundamental shift in the nature of land warfare. And that nations that nations that enter into ground campaigns without full dominance of the skies are going to get their heads handed to them. And the more weapons that countries can purchase by the main producers of these weapons, including Israel and Turkey, uh, the more uh, you know, the more in danger land forces will be. Uh, this is a potential revolution in the military balance of power. Uh, and I hope that uh, people in the Defense Department have gone to school on what just happened. I'm confident that they will, but I hope they get it right the first time. Okay, Linda. 
Uh, yes, I want to point out uh, something from the Claremont Institute, which is a, a somewhat minor think tank out on the West Coast. Mona, you and I know it well, maybe others don't. Uh, I might say at the beginning that the mission of the Claremont Institute is, quote, to restore the principles of the American founding to their rightful preeminent authority in our national life. Well, this is what the Claremont Institute had to say about the election this week in a, uh, an article written under the pseudonym Horatius. Uh, they wrote, Kamikaze Trump. If Trump is going down, he should take the swamp monsters down with him. And they have a variety of actions uh, that they are proposing. One is to end the wars. They want uh, an immediate withdrawal, I guess, from Afghanistan. They want uh, him in the last days of his presidency to fire the generals. Uh, they want him to appoint a special counsel to investigate Biden corruption. They want every Republican judge near retirement to retire and Mitch McConnell to busily confirm uh, Republican judicial nominees. They want to declassify um, virtually everything, I guess. Maybe they should just join up with WikiLeaks on that. They want to finalize rules. They want to take executive orders and turn them into actual regulations. And they want to burrow the political appointees, as I referred to earlier, uh, into the uh, bowels of the civil service. This really does sound like uh, restoring the principles of the American founding. It shows the depths, uh, the degradation that some on the right have uh, fallen into in the last three and a half years. Moral depravity comes to mind. Uh, by the way, this is the same Claremont Institute that made um, Jack Posobiec, the spreader of the Pizzagate conspiracy theory on Twitter, they made him a fellow, a right. Lincoln fellow. Uh, yeah. yeah. Don't so. forget the Flight 93 election. Uh, yes, which was in a, correct, which was in a uh, Claremont publication. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, Eric, final thoughts? Well, first, I I agree with Linda about the um, the Claire monsters, and um, <laughs> that's good. And um, and I very much agree with Bill about both the tone that Vice President Biden has set, but also his his comment about uh, drone warfare in the South Caucasus. I, I would just note uh, for Bill that uh, it's not just in the South Caucasus where Turkish uh, TB two drones have made a huge difference on the battlefield. They also changed the balance of forces in Libya um, and promoted uh, the uh, GNA government um, uh, on the battlefield there. And it's worth thinking a little bit about how this happened. I mean, the reason Turkey became a producer of, of drones um, uh, was because we denied them uh, armed predators and reapers because of the missile technology control regime, uh, setting off, I think, potential you know, arms race and unmanned aviation around the world uh, because they will proliferate it hither, thither, and yon rather than letting us do it in a more controlled way. So it's it's one of the, I think, unanticipated uh, you know, consequences of, of arms control. Mm-hmm. I have a, a sort of different highlight and low light, and they're the same, same event. Um, and, and that is that when uh, my uh, you know, successor several times removed, James Anderson, who was acting as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, uh, was terminated by the uh, Trump uh, White House. 
um, he was clapped out of the Pentagon by his his colleagues. That is to say, they formed a giant cordon uh, at the river entrance and applauded him as as he departed the building, which I think shows the degree uh, of respect that he had as uh, someone who was uh, trying to preserve uh, traditional uh, values of an apolitical civil service, um, protecting his colleagues and uh, fighting with Secretary Esper, I think, uh, for uh, sane uh, policies. Um, the uh, consequence of which was that the White House reached out immediately to Secretary Miller and his new team of uh, Trump lickspittles uh, and demanded that they identify every uh, presidential appointee who had participated <laughs> in this so they could be fired. Gosh. Wow. Wow. Just amazing. All right. Um, mine is a tribute to uh, Representative uh, James Clyburn of South Carolina, who, uh, you know, there, the, the great man theory of history is, is held in low esteem these days by historians. Uh, there's much more focus on great sweeps of movements and technological changes and other things. But, um, but individuals still matter tremendously in history. There are hinge moments and think as we now with the advantage of hindsight, when we look back on the 2020 presidential race, we can see clearly that Jim Clyburn's decision to endorse Biden when he did made the crucial difference. When, when Clyburn endorsed him, he got the African-American community behind him in South Carolina. He went on to a resounding win. He had lost the early contests, but after that he had momentum and then the party lined up behind him and others dropped out in his in his favor and so on. And had Biden not been the nominee, I think we can also begin to see now, it is very doubtful uh, that we would be, uh, we would not be looking at a second uh, Trump term. And so Clyburn um, has earned our eternal gratitude. And it's just a reminder that every single person, every decision that each of us makes can have far-reaching consequences that we don't always see in the moment. And um, every person matters in every individual. All right. On that note, I would just like to remind our listeners that if you are listening to us on your browser, that's great, but it would be more convenient for you and frankly, a little better for us if you would subscribe uh, to one of the podcasting apps and uh, down have us on a regular download um, and uh, we would appreciate that. Of course, rates, ratings and reviews are always helpful, especially if they're five stars. If not, forget it. Um, and um, I want to just express my <laughs> our deep gratitude to Eric Edelman for sharing his uh, wisdom with us. This was uh, really, really interesting. And uh, thank you one and all. We will be back next week as every week. <laughs> <laughs>